You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Everyone loves a good show. They're fun, they're entertaining, and they're thrilling, and sometimes they can even be educational. A good show can stir you up to face challenges that would be too daunting to tackle without that boost. It's one of the things we love about sport, a close, exciting contest where the winner is not known until the thrilling final seconds of the game. Even if your team loses, you can appreciate the battle. Of course, a one-sided contest or a sound thrashing is not so much fun, even for fans of the winning team. You're happy to have a win on the board, of course, but there's nothing particularly entertaining about the match. Pop stars understand the value of spectacle. Carefully choreographed stage shows, impressive backdrops, complex lighting, eye-catching costumes, they all contribute to putting together a memorable show. I can still clearly remember Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare concert tour back in 1977 in Adelaide when I was a young bloke. It was a stunningly theatrical rock concert and it still rates as probably the best show, the best concert I've ever been to. P.T. Barnum understood the value of a good show. Back in the middle 1800s, he opened a museum on Broadway in New York. He filled the museum with unusual exhibits and curiosities and strange animals. And he put together a troupe of performers with amazing abilities, jugglers, magicians, contortionists. He also displayed people with unusual or unfortunate physical features. Albinos, giants, little people, bearded ladies in what would have been called a freak show in generations past. In our politically correct times, it's easy to look back at P.T. Barnum as a man who exploited the unfortunate for his own gain. But that may be a bit of a harsh judgment on him. No doubt he did benefit from it, but many of his human exhibits would have been abandoned to live alone in squalor, degradation and poverty if Barnum hadn't given them a place in his shows. He was also not beyond the occasional hoax to entertain people. He was known to stitch together parts of unrelated animals stuffed, of course, to create hybrids such as the Fiji mermaid, which was the body of a monkey with the tail of a fish. He would claim, of course, it was not a hoax, it was merely part of the whole entertainment package. As long as people were getting good value for their money, he didn't believe he was ripping anyone off. Barnum's shows became the stuff of legend and inspired the musical movie The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman. Now, I'm not a fan of musicals personally, but that is a truly good movie. It's a fun movie, it's an emotional movie, it's an uplifting movie, and I can recommend it. We all love to be entertained. We all love a good show. It's nothing new. The ancient Romans loved to be entertained by the battles between gladiators, sometimes a battle to the death in the Colosseum in Rome. And we love to be entertained by football battles to the metaphorical death in the Colosseum of the MCG. Some things never change. The Jews love to be entertained as well, as we're about to see in our passage in John chapter 4. 
that should be no surprise to us, for Paul wrote some years later, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 43. And we've spent the last several weeks looking at the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. This conversation culminated with a woman being born again and large numbers for townsfolk being born again also. So it begins in verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You'd remember back at the start of John chapter 4, after causing a ruckus in the temple, Jesus left Jerusalem on a journey to Galilee, but he decided to go through Samaritan territory on the way because he had a divine appointment with an outcast woman that would result in her salvation and the salvation of many other Samaritans. In fact, it was the first large-scale conversion of people to Christ, and they came from amongst these Samaritans, people who traditionally were enemies of Jesus and his own people. It's a foretelling of the pattern of evangelism and expansion that we read about in the book of Acts. The Samaritans were so taken with Jesus that they begged him to stay, and stay he did for two more days with them, during which time many more became believers because of what he said. These Samaritans apparently had sat attentively under Jesus' teaching and embraced it wholeheartedly, which will make for an interesting contrast soon, and indeed many times throughout John's Gospel. So we'll actually back up a couple of verses to verse 40 to set the scene. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. <clears throat> Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the saviour of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
So Jesus leaves Samaria and heads on into Galilee. And straight away we're confronted with something that at first glance doesn't seem to make much sense. These are verses that have baffled people and many scholars for a long, long time. And many people have used them as supposed proof that the Bible is full of nonsense and contradictions. So we've got a few things to wrestle with if we're going to understand what it is that John's telling us here. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in his hometown or in his home country. So what is it that John means when he adds that explanation in brackets? For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. It seems out of place. Samaria is definitely not his hometown, so it can't mean that he's leaving Samaria for Galilee because the Samaritans didn't give him the honour he was due. And anyway, we know the Samaritans did honour him. They welcomed him. They begged him to stay with them. And most importantly, they believed what he said. So John can't be saying that Jesus left Samaria due to a lack of honour. Some think that John is looking back to the reasons Jesus left Judea in the first place and travelled through Samaria. He certainly didn't get a lot of respect in Jerusalem. The Jews were not happy with him for messing up the temple, for starters, back in the beginning of chapter 2, or back in chapter 2. While he was there in Jerusalem, he did a number of miracles. John tells us that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's John 2.23. That surely sounds like honour, doesn't it? But then the passage goes on with this ominous text. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That suggests that something was not quite right about the response of the people to him, even though it tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But there's another problem with interpreting his hometown as Jerusalem or Judea, and that is that the Bible never ever suggests that Judea is his home turf. Maybe then understanding this will hinge on working out why John used the word for in the phrase. Does he mean that Jesus left because they would not honour him? As, as if Jesus got upset that he was disrespected and decided to go where he was better appreciated? So is John looking back to past events? Or is he looking forward to future events? Does it mean something like Jesus departed for Galilee to prove the point that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. If that's the case, then we could expect them to welcome Jesus when he arrives. Uh, sorry, that we could expect them to not welcome Jesus when he arrives. So we go on to read, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, there I told you so. The Bible's full of contradictions and can't be trusted. How can you claim the Bible is the word of God and without error when it clearly is not? Jesus testified that a prophet has no honour in his own hometown and when he, when he gets there, they welcome him. How is that not contradictory? Are we trapped? Is there no way out of this dilemma? 
do the critics of the Bible have a good argument here? The problem is compounded by the fact that this verse about having no honour is also quoted in the other three Gospels. But in those three Gospels, he clearly isn't getting any honour. In Matthew, Matthew 13, 57, it says, And they were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Mark writes in Mark 6, verse 3, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. And so he was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Luke writes a longer version, but with a similar response. Note how in Luke's version, they love him to begin with, but how quickly their interest turns to anger and hatred when Jesus tells them things they don't want to hear. Luke 4.22 says, They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you'll quote to me, quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. So all we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell the same story of rejection in keeping with Jesus' words about not being honoured. But John seems to tell us the opposite story about the same words. How can this be? Scholars have come up with all sorts of creative explanations for why this is not a contradiction. Some of the explanations are pretty convoluted, and many of them are pretty unsatisfactory, in my opinion. I don't think most of their explanations are worth worth spending much time on, but it's good for us to acknowledge that there are some difficult passages in the Bible, some that need to be wrestled with. And it's good to know that some passages require effort. They require us digging deep to understand. And it's also good to realise that not everything written about the Bible, whether it's by scholars or anyone else, and including me, is necessarily true. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, does John, our author, really not know what he's talking about? Is he really so stupid that he doesn't realise he's contradicting himself? I think not. 
I think the, uh, there is a pretty reasonable explanation. And in fact, I think there's a couple that probably make enough sense that either could explain it. Now, neither Judea in the south and uh, neighbouring Samaria just to the north of Judea are his hometown, his home country. Jesus has since come further north to Galilee, which is his home country. He's not actually, he's currently in Cana, which is not his hometown. The Bible makes pretty clear that his hometown is actually Nazareth in Galilee. But uh, Cana is only about six kilometres as the crow flies, so it's not far from Nazareth. So he's definitely back in his home country, his home turf. And given the interest he stirred up in Jerusalem at the Passover, which many of the Galileans attended, he's got plenty of people coming from all over to see him in Cana. And no doubt, plenty of them are from Nazareth as well. So, if we're the grant that John is referring to his return to Galilee, we still have the problem that the Galilees, Galileans welcomed him. How do we deal with that? Now, many of the Galileans had seen what Jesus had done in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. They were amongst the crowd who witnessed the miracles. And some of them, no doubt, witnessed him turning over the tables of the money changers and the animal traders in the temple courts. So these same Galileans must have been among the many who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was working back in Jerusalem. Which means they were all also amongst those Jesus would not entrust himself to because he knew what was in their hearts. And what was it that was in their hearts? It surely wasn't a desire to hear, receive and respond to the words of Jesus, unlike the Samaritans. Instead, Jesus tells these people in no uncertain terms in a couple of verses, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How did the Galileans welcome him then? As a prophet or as an entertainer? Certainly not as a prophet. They were more interested in signs, in miracles. They were more interested in the spectacular than they were in Jesus' words, in God's words. I guess we need to ask here then, what is it that a prophet does? The Samaritans welcomed him as a prophet. A prophet speaks the very words of God. He speaks them accurately. He speaks them truthfully. He speaks them boldly. And when a prophet speaks, the people are expected to listen. They're expected to believe. They're expected to respond with or without signs. The prophet's word alone should be sufficient. Now, the Bible is pretty clear about a prophet's, how a prophet's words are to be received and to be judged. If the prophetic word is not true, then he's not a prophet. Ignore him and reject what he tells you. In fact, in Old Testament tone, times, they were not told just to ignore. They were told to stone the false prophet to death. How can you know if the prophet's word is true? By comparing it to what God actually says, the Bible. If it doesn't come to pass, he's not a prophet. Plenty of prophetic words have been given in modern times that are nonsense and they've never come true. That person is not a prophet. Ignore him. And even if it does come true, 
but it leads you away from God, he is not a prophet. It doesn't matter how good it sounds or how accurately it is fulfilled. If the result causes you to turn from God, that person is not a prophet of God. There's plenty of so-called prophecy in the modern church. A vast amount of it is about as specific and as accurate as the horoscope in the Sunday papers. Yet it masquerades as prophetic words from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we need to be more discerning. We need to weigh these so-called prophetic words up against the Bible, against the real word of God, the unfailing word of God, the word that is sharp, specific, and will come to pass every time. In contrast to the celebrity status that modern prophets seem to enjoy, the Bible shows us that the usual response to a true prophet is not acceptance and celebration of his word, but rather it's to be rejected, even to be killed. Hebrews 11 tells us graphically that most of the prophets were mocked, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. So the problem with these Galileans isn't, is that they weren't really interested in what Jesus had to say. They wanted miracles. When Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, he wasn't speaking to the man who came seeking healing for his son. Jesus uses the plural you, as some Americans would say, y'all. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, Jesus was saying. He was addressing everyone that was there. They were all guilty of seeking from Jesus the wrong thing. That's in stark contrast to the reception he had in Samaria. There is no suggestion that in Samaria he performed any miracles, but many more believed because of his word, it tells us in verse 41. So straight away we see a contrast between the faith of the Samaritans and the unbelief of the Galileans, who would not accept Jesus unless he performed signs and wonders for them. Many, maybe we could paraphrase Jesus to say, a prophet is with honour in the most unlikely places. The Samaritan woman certainly honoured him as a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, she said. Her fellow townsfolk go even further. We know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. But the Jews didn't honour him that way. Nor did the Galileans. They weren't interested in a prophet. They wanted someone to perform tricks for them. His word wasn't enough for them. And that, I believe, is a warning for us. If we can't accept Jesus on the basis of his word, which for us today is the Bible, then we really aren't accepting him at all. We're certainly not honouring him. Instead, we're curiosity seekers. We're looking for a circus performer to entertain us, to amaze us. We're looking for a contortionist or a magician, someone to, leaving, to make us scratch our heads in wonder right up until a more interesting act comes along. 
course, some will point out that Jesus still healed the man's son in spite of the criticism of them. And that's true. Part of Jesus' mission, according to Luke 4.18, was to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. But he does that in the context of the gospel, the word of God, not apart from the gospel and not instead of the gospel. For the spirit of the Lord is upon me, it says in Luke 4, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel, to the poor. I think John deliberately highlighted this event in Cana of Galilee to contrast the faith of the Samaritans who accepted Jesus at his word with the shallowness of the Galileans who wanted to see before they would believe. So as long as I'm here preaching, I will relentlessly point you to the Bible, the word of God, as the source of faith that not only saves in the beginning, but sustains your faith to the end. That's something miracles and signs and wonders can never do, for they were never intended to do that. Supernatural acts, signs and wonders and the like may open the door for an audience, but it's not enough. Jesus went to Galilee, his home turf, to take the gospel to them. He went to them as a prophet, whether they would honour him or not because they needed to hear the word of God. They needed to hear his message of salvation. Who do you and I know who needs to hear the word of God today? Regardless of whether they want to hear it or not, they need to hear it. If we capture someone's interest with signs and wonders and then fail to lead them from there into the word of God, we've failed them. If their fledgling faith never converts to a deep faith based on scripture, they may never survive. For the word of God is designed both to bring about the faith that saves in the beginning and also to keep you until the day you die. And that's why any Christian, new or otherwise, needs to get the Bible into them. It's why you and I need to get our teeth into the Bible. We need to wrestle with these difficult passages, with these things that seem to contradict and not make sense. Miracles and signs and wonders should be celebrated when they're genuine, but they should never be what we base our faith on. Remember what Paul said? The Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jesus Christ is not a circus performer who does tricks at our command. He doesn't exist for our entertainment. He is the Lord of all. He is the creator and ruler of all creation. He is King of kings and Lord of Lords, we should be the ones responding to his commands, not the other way around. If we treat him 
as anything less than Lord of all, we're not only failing to honour him as we should, we're slapping him in the face. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say, he said. What, brothers and sisters, should be our focus? Miracles or Christ and his word? I think the answer from scripture is obvious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll draw us deep into your word, that you'll build our faith on your word, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, you've said. Lord, we pray that we would honour you, as the Samaritans did, by hearing and welcoming and obeying your word. We pray, Lord, that we would never, ever look on our God, our Saviour, as a circus performer, expecting tricks from him, expecting miracles from him before we would believe. But, Lord, we pray that there will be a depth to our faith, an unshakable depth to our faith, because we have seen and heard the words of Christ. We have seen and heard and responded to words that dig deep foundations in our life, that build solid structures of faith in our life. Lord, we pray <clears throat> pray for friends and our family and others we may know who chase after the latest wonder worker, the latest uh, sign giver, as if he's the one that can impart faith and salvation to them, Lord. Lord, I pray that they will see through that to see the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ and his word. Lord, for those who have been captivated by miracles, Lord, we pray that it will be the opening door that leads them into a deeper faith based on your word, because your word never fails, Lord. Your word will always stand. And one day, Lord, there will never be there will be a time when signs and wonders are not required in any form anymore, because we'll see you face to face, but your word will remain, Lord. Teach us your word. Open us to your word, Lord. Stir us to respond to your word. Help us to build our faith, our life, every day on your word. So, Lord, that we give Jesus the honour that he is due, that he is not without honour in the hometown of our hearts, but, Lord, that he would be magnified above all. And we pray this in his precious and his mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.